When we were in Israel a couple of years ago, there were so many sights and sounds that are really stick with you. They're really amazing. One of the privileges that we had, which was an unforeseen privilege, was we were there a little bit early and we were able, when we were in Tel Aviv, to visit Independence Hall. And there in Tel Aviv, it's a small building, but there in that building on the 14th of May in 1948, uh, David Ben-Gurion declared the independence of the state of Israel, and the country was born. And it's just a, it's an incredible thing to be in that place. It's uh, having been uh, many years ago in Philadelphia, of course, an independence hall there, and, and all that happened in that place as well, it just really sends shivers down your spine to be in a place with the birth of a country. Independence was declared on the 14th of May in 1948. On the 15th of May in 1948, five Arab armies invaded the fledgling country of Israel, and her war of independence began. Uh, Virtually no nation extended any formal help to that little fledgling nation of Israel, yet in God's incredible providence, she succeeded in turning back this attack, and the nation was not exterminated. In its birth, she went on to grow and to develop, having been attacked again in 1967. And again, God really amazingly intervening on behalf of the nation of Israel. The Six-Day War of 1967, which Israel uh, conquered again a coalition of Arab armies, primarily Jordan and Egypt, and extended her territories down into the Negev, uh, really all the way to the Suez Canal, and also to the north and to the east, and capturing the city of Jerusalem and what was known biblically as the territory of Samaria and the north of Jerusalem and in the south, Judea. It is commonly called the West Bank. As you hear in the news reports, they talk about the West Bank. They are talking about ancient Samaria and southern uh, Judah. She vastly extended her territories in the 1967 war. Again, she was attacked in 1973 in the Yom Kippur War and again faced almost certain extinction being attacked in the north and the south simultaneously. But God again intervened and she was able to defend herself and remain a free nation, in fact, the only democracy in the Middle East. The history of the nation of Israel is a very fascinating story. But the question that arises, I think, in the minds of many, many Bible-believing Christians is this. Was the establishment of the nation in 1948 the fulfillment of biblical prophecy? You'll often hear people talk about that. Some will say yes, and some will say no. And my answer for you this morning is maybe yes and maybe no. Maybe yes, maybe no. And the reason I say that, uh, beginning first with maybe no, is because the regathering of the Jewish people into their ancient homeland and the establishment of the political nation of modern Israel in 1948 was not and has not been accompanied by the massive outpouring of the Spirit of God and the conversion of the Jewish people back to their God as was foretold in the Old Testament, passages such as Deuteronomy chapter 30, Jeremiah chapter 30, 31, and Ezekiel chapter 36 would be just a few 
that one could go to and read about the gathering of the nation where God says he will gather his people from the four winds and bring them into the land, and he will be their God and they will be his people. You don't see that. So I would say maybe no. I would say maybe yes in this sense. It is possible that the regathering occurs over an extended period of time and that the physical regathering occurs first and the spiritual conversion occurs secondly. That's possible. Certainly something like the 1948, you know, the regathering accompanying all of that would be necessary for the people of Israel to be back in their homeland for the events associated with the end time as it concerns the nation of Israel. So they do need to be there. Whether this is it or not, we just don't know. Someone said, is it possible for Israel to be driven from the land and God to still be true to his promises? And I would say, yes, it is possible that she could be driven from her land only to be regathered again some other day. So we need to be really, really careful with date setting. I guess that's where I'm going with this. As we study here, and I'm calling this a message, and it's going to be multiple parts, uh, Jesus' uh, panoramic or prophetic panorama, Jesus' prophetic panorama. We need to be careful that we are not interpreting the scriptures with the newspaper in one hand and seeking to associate every single thing we read in the news with some particular passage of scripture. We need to be careful about that. Is it possible that these end-time biblical events are unfolding before our eyes? Yes, it is clearly possible. Is it essential for the word of God to be true? No, it is not. No, it is not. So we need to be a little bit careful as we enter into this. So this morning, what I want to do with you, this morning's message is really not a sermon per se. You know, it's not this... uh, the sermon where there's going to be all these application points and you need to do this and stop doing that and believe this and don't believe that and you know read your Bible more and all of that sort of thing. Really, what this is going to be is, is more like a teaching time. So I want to teach you some things from the scriptures with regard to the, the panorama of the future of the nation of Israel. Okay? So that's what we're going to try to accomplish. So I want to, as they say here, I want to lay a groundwork for Jesus' prophetic panorama. I want, to, I want to answer or ask and begin to answer a question. And the question is this, what is going to happen to God's ancient people? What is going to happen to God's ancient people? And this is an important question, even though we are not Jewish people. We are Gentiles, by and large, saved by the Jewish Messiah, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saved, to be sure. And in this present day and age, we are united to all who place faith in Jesus Christ, whether they be Jew or Gentile, in the organism called the church. But what happens to God's ancient people has has incredible importance to us because it it speaks to the reality of God's fidelity to his promises. God keeps his word, and he has given his word to Abraham and his descendants. So the very credibility of God is on the line with regard to the future of the nation of Israel. So what I want to do with you this morning is is look at a few things. We're going to be kind of here and there in the scriptures. And I want to begin by looking at what I'm calling the disciples' view of prophecy. So I want to begin together with you this morning with the disciples' 
view of prophecy. And it begins like this. We, we need to, to uh, think about what, what many people call prophetic peaks. Prophetic peaks. And what I mean by that is uh, from my house here in Upland, when I look up at, uh, towards Mount Baldy, I actually cannot see it. Mount Baldy is the highest peak uh, in the range here, but but from the vantage point of where I live, uh, there's another mountain whose name eludes me at the moment, but it uh, it obscures the higher peak behind it. And it's just a question of vantage point. If you continue to move to the west and you go up Mountain Avenue, then Mount Baldy is there in all her glory. She is clearly the highest peak. Between the peaks are, is, are valleys, a uh, pretty significant valley, actually. And when you, from the vantage point, when you look, and even when you see the two peaks, you don't see the valley in between, and the peaks look superimposed on each other. That's just what we might call an optical illusion, I suppose. But it, it illustrates a biblical reality with regard to reading the prophets of the Old Testament. As we read the prophets of the Old Testament, what we find in many cases is that they superimpose prophetic events one on top of another, and sometimes even the order of the events is not chronological. And so we need to be very careful as we read these things to recognize that what God is doing is speaking truth But he is not necessarily laying it out for us in an exact chronology. And furthermore, he did not reveal at the time he he gave this uh, revelation to the prophets that there would be a a long period of time that would occur between the events. I think one of the most classic illustrations of that can be found in Zechariah chapter 9. And I'm going to direct your attention there. Zechariah. Chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Zechariah is a prophet, what is called a post-exilic prophet. That is, he wrote to the nation of Israel following their return from the Babylonian captivity. He is found near the end of the Old Testament. In fact, uh, only Malachi lie between he and Matthew. So Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. I love to hear the sound of turning pages. Somebody can invent an iPad app that would imitate turning pages. I might be convinced. No, I wouldn't be. Okay. (laughs) Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, that's a reference to what? That's right, to his triumphal entry in, on Palm Sunday, right? And just to keep this all chronologically, we're working through Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 24. It occurs, the events of Matthew 24 occur on Tuesday afternoon of Passion Week. So it's just a couple of days Right after the fulfillment of this prophecy. But notice verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. And the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak peace to the nations. And his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The river there, by the way, is Euphrates. His dominion, the kingdom, will be from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. 
He enters Jerusalem humble and mounted on a donkey. He conquers the nations, verse 10. That's what speaks peace to the nations means. He basically tells them to, you know, cut it out. I'm in charge. And he extends his reign over the entire earth. Those are two prophetic peaks. One refers to the first coming, as we now know it. Verse 10 is a reference to the second coming of Christ. And there is a time gap between them in the white spaces of your Bible that is rolling up on 2,000 years and counting. Okay, so these are prophetic peaks. We find these all over the scriptures, if you're looking for them. I'll give you another example really quickly. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 50. Jeremiah chapter 50. If you're with the church in, the, in, the, in our Bible reading program through the Bible together, uh, this was today's reading. And so as I was reading this this morning, it just sort of popped out to me. Jeremiah chapter 50. The prophet Jeremiah is giving a prophecy against Babylon. Babylon will soon sweep in and destroy Jerusalem, carry off the nation captive. And so he's speaking about that. But then he slips in a prophetic peak in verse 4. In those days and at that time. By the way, if you see that expression, then, uh, then that should cause your ears to perk up. Because what that means is that, is that the prophet is now looking forward into the future, way out into the future. Notice what he says, in those days and at that time, declares the Lord, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well, and they will go along weeping as they go, and it will be the Lord their God they will seek. They will ask for the way to Zion, turning their faces in its direction, and they will come that they may join themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. Verse 20, in those days and at that time, declares the Lord, Search will be made for the iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. For the sins of Judah, but they will not be found. For I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. That is not speaking about the return from the Babylonian captivity 70 years from that point of writing. It is again looking way out into the future to the future regathering of the nation of Israel. So it's another situation where you have two prophetic peaks. You have the chapter 50 is speaking about the, the, um, the historical Babylonian conquest of Israel. And it inserted into it is this moment of hope for the future regathering of the people. Okay, so the idea of prophetic peaks. Now go ahead and, uh, and uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 61. Because this concept of prophetic peaks eluded the disciples. It eluded the disciples. The disciples saw the coming of Messiah as one united, unified event. As they read the prophets, that's what they saw. So so Isaiah chapter 61, let me just read it for you. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion. Giving them a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. 
the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations, and they will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Strangers will stand and pasture your flocks, and foreigners will be your farmers and your vine dressers. But you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion, and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering, and I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant with them. Then their offspring will be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to to spring up, So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. What a wonderful prophecy. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, so shoot on over to Luke. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, entered the synagogue in Nazareth. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So this is the beginning of his great Galilean ministry, about 18 months. And the news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written. He found Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And of course you know how it goes. They want to throw him off a cliff by the time the days are not too much further into it. What I want you to notice is that Jesus ends the reading of Isaiah 61 in the middle of verse 2. He reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2a, we would say, and then he closes the book. Why? Look back to Isaiah 61. Go back to Isaiah 61. He's reading, right? The Lord has, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me, verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, and he closes the book. What he doesn't say is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Because it wasn't time for the day of vengeance of our God. That is a prophetic peak that lies in the future. So what Jesus is saying is that 
some of it's fulfilled and some of it remains unfulfilled. But for the disciples, they were not adept at this time in making this designation. They saw and understood the Messiah's reign and rule and all that spoke of it as one unified event. They had been heavily influenced by, and turn here to Zechariah chapter 12, 13, and 14. This is where they had established their eschatology, their view of the last days. Now remember, and uh, you don't have to turn, but I'll just remind you, I'll read it to you to remind you, that uh, Luke gives us an important little insight in Luke 19 and verse 11. This is when they're on their way up to Jerusalem, coming through Jericho, where where Zacchaeus is converted and so forth. It says, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Why? Because they were near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. It was going to appear immediately. Now think about it. They are predisposed to think that his, that his trip to, to Jerusalem is going to bring about the kingdom of God. When he comes into the city on Sunday, of course, the crowds pour out and they all proclaim, Hosanna to the son of David, right? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118. That's the messianic enthronement psalm. And so they're convinced, they're convinced that the kingdom is coming. They have Zechariah, the teaching of Zechariah 12, 13, 14, running through their minds. And Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, and we're not going to cover the whole of Zechariah here to be sure. But it speaks about a time in which there will be an attack upon the city of Jerusalem. And it, and it will be destroyed, not fully, not completely, but it will be on the edge of its complete and total destruction. And then Messiah will intervene, defeat, her, defeat the enemies of the people, and establish his future kingdom. You can see it probably most closely in chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. And so we will read that just so you get this idea. So Zechariah chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. The prophet writes, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city will be captured and the houses plundered, the women ravished and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea. So that's the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean. And it will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. 
But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it and there will no longer be a curse for Jerusalem will dwell in security. And it will go on to say that uh, the, um, in fact, I'll take you there, verse 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. So the Gentile nations, the prophet says, will come to Jerusalem to to enter into the celebration of the Lord. The city will become holy, the people will become holy, so holy that the cooking pots, the fry pans, verse 20, in their houses will be just as holy as the, as the golden uh, signia on the, priest, on the high priest's head, which said, holy to the Lord. Okay? So the fry pan will be that holy. And it's just speaking about the holiness that will prevail among the people of God in the city of Jerusalem on that day. This is running in the minds of the disciples. Okay? They are unable to reconcile Jesus' repeated predictions of his death. Every time he says he's going to die, it's like blinders come over their eyes, fingers go in their ears, and you know, you know I'm not going to hear this. And so they cannot process the idea of a dead Messiah with a reigning ruling king. Now, Matthew 24. Two critical questions from Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and verse 3. As he, that is Jesus, was sitting on the Mount of Olives, that's east of the city, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Mark chapter 13, verses 3 and 4 says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? So Peter, James, John, and Andrew come to Jesus, and they ask essentially two questions. What and when? What and when? Now remember, as far as they can, can conceive of, as far as what they understand the Old Testament to predict, is that the Messiah will come and will establish his kingdom. And he will come in the nick of time to, to, to deliver the city from its certain destruction. Now Jesus has just sat down, right, in uh, Matthew 24, and he has said in well, Matthew 23, verse 38, your house is being left to you desolate, Right? Then they go out and they sit and they're looking at the temple and the disciples come to them and they say, look at the temple buildings, aren't they beautiful? You know, what a marvelous thing that is. And Jesus says, listen, I tell you the truth. Not one stone will be left upon another, right? And then which will not be torn down. Well, listen, you don't tear down the temple of Israel without tearing down the city. You don't get to it without tearing down the city, without conquering the nation. So the very fact that the temple will be destroyed implies that the entire a nation will be devastated, will be rendered desolate. And so they come and they want to know two things. What's the sign and when's it going to happen? Because in their mind, they're, they're persuaded that once this begins, then Jesus, you are going to intervene and you are going to establish your great messianic kingdom. 
You can just see them. They've already been told by Jesus, right? Earlier they had asked him, like, hey, we've given up a lot of stuff to follow you. What's in it for us? And he says, in that day, right, in the resurrection, you will be sitting judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's get this show on the road. Let's get this thing going. You're telling us that the city is going to be destroyed. The temple is going to be destroyed. What that means is that you are going to establish your kingdom. You're going to first crush Israel's enemies. And our enemy right now is Rome. You're going to crush Rome and you're going to establish your kingdom. So what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? And when will it happen? So two questions they're asking. What and when? What and when? What will be... Verse 3, the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. That's really kind of, it's one question with two parts. The sign of your coming. The word is parousia. If you're at all familiar with prophecy and so forth, you're probably familiar with that term. The word means presence or arrival of a king or high official. That's what the word means, the coming. Now, in the New Testament, uh, outside of this context, it, it is often used to speak of the second coming of Jesus. His second coming. That's not what the disciples mean when they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? Because the disciples have no idea about a second coming because they have no idea that he's going to what? Leave. So they don't know about second comings. All they know about is, you're here. So what will be the sign of your establishment, of your presence, of, of, of the establishment of the kingdom? That's what they're asking. And of the end of the age. Now, Jewish eschatology divides world history into essentially two ages. There is, the, there is the present age, and there is the age to come. So there's the present age, the age to come. And that's good. That's essentially true. We live in the present age now. There is the age to come. Prior to the coming of the age to come, prior to that future time, there will be what is known as the day of the Lord. It's often spoken of by the prophets as a day of great wrath and darkness, the day of the Lord, right? You remember when, the, uh, when John the Baptist is out baptizing and the, and the scribes and the Pharisees come to be baptized and he says to them, who warned you to flee what? The wrath to come, the day of the Lord that comes before the establishment of the age to come, the age to come being Messiah's kingdom, this present age is characterized by, by sin and darkness. The age to come is characterized by righteousness and peace and prosperity. Okay? It's a very simple way of looking at things, and it actually is a biblical way of looking at things. That is what God has said. Okay? The present age and the age to come. These disciples here are asking this question, what? What will be the sign? What should we look for that will tell us that, right, the age to come, the establishment of your kingdom, what do we look for for that? Is it the destruction of the temple? Is that what we're to look for? The what question. The answer to the what question is long, and we're not going to get to it today. But they ask a second question. Actually, they ask it first. It's the when question that we will look at today. So the what, you'll have to hang on to because it's long and complicated. The when question is a little bit easier. Tell us, when will these things happen? Verse 3, tell us when will these things happen? What is the these things? The these things in context is a reference back to not one stone will be left upon another. Tell us when that's going to happen. So Jesus begins to answer their question. But he doesn't answer it in the way that they expected. In fact, what he does 
is he begins to address the what question first. And as far as Matthew's account goes, he never gets around to the when question. He, in Matthew 24 deals entirely with the what question. The when question, for an answer for the when question, we have to shoot over to Luke's gospel. So I'm going to take you over to Luke 21. Okay, Luke 21. Kind of keep your, your finger in Matthew 24 as well. In fact, keep your, let me do it this way. Keep your finger in Luke 21. Let me just read a little bit of Matthew 24 uh, for you so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. So Matthew 24, beginning in verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, see, that no one, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened by those, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. In various places, there'll be famines and earthquakes and so forth. Okay, now over to Luke 21. Oh, let's pick it up in verse 5. While some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, Jesus said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. But when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be a great earthquake, and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Verse 12. But before all these things. Circle it. But before all these things. They will lay their hands on you and, you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my namesake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will betray, be betrayed even by brother, parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But there will be a great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Verses 12 through 24 are a parenthesis. They are one big parenthesis. They are an answer to the when question in the midst of an answer to the what question. Follow along. Verse 11. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Verse 25. Then there will be signs in, in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the seas and the waves and so forth. In the middle of Jesus... Now, beginning to answer the what question, he stops and he says, but before all these things that I'm about to tell you about that, that are associated with the end of the age, I'm going to answer your when question of when are they going to tear the temple down? 
And that's what he does. And he says that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, recognize her desolation is near. She was surrounded by armies. She was surrounded by the Roman armies under the general Titus in AD 70. And the city walls were finally breached and the city was entirely destroyed. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And Rome leveled the place. Interestingly, the uh, church, that is the, the believers, the followers, the disciples of Christ, recognizing in Luke 21 that Jesus was predicting this and, the, and that they should flee, left the city and for the most part were not destroyed in the siege. It was the Jewish nation, the unbelieving Jewish nation that suffered in the siege of Rome. But I want you to notice in verse 24 how as Jesus lays out this panorama, he talks about Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. We need to talk about that. We need to talk about the times of the Gentiles. It's part of the panorama. We are living in the times of the Gentiles. Okay, so let's take a look at this. The times of the Gentiles, what does it mean? It is a time when, when the Gentiles exercise dominion over the Jewish people, illustrated by their dominion over the capital city of Jerusalem, and, and in particular, the Temple Mount. When did it begin? When did the times of the Gentiles begin? Well, the answer to that question is found back in 2 Kings. So I'm going to turn you all the way back into your history books to 2 Kings. comes right before 1 Chronicles and chapter 24. 2 Kings Chapter 24. Let me say this as you're turning there, that if uh, some of this is like, wow, I've, I've never heard all of this, and this is coming really fast, and this is hard to hang on to, don't worry. Okay, get what you get, because we're going to go over it again, and we're going to have to go over it again, we're going to have to go over it again, because we're just going to be looking at it from different angles, okay? So it's not your one and only chance. All right, but that's not a reason to sleep, so here we go. Okay, the times of the Gentiles. Second Kings, and particularly the later part of Second Kings, chronicles the descent into captivity of the nation of Judah, right? The, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes in the north, have already been taken away in 722 B.C. into the Assyrian captivity. Judah, never uh, repenting, never recognizing God's judgment upon the north, continues in her evil ways. Her high water mark is Josiah, and when Josiah is killed in battle by the Egyptians in 605, when he goes out to prevent Pharaoh from coming north through Israel to do battle with the Babylonians at Carchemish, and he is killed prematurely, as at least a human point of view, the nation from that point descends down into oblivion. And there are a series of kings, and these kings are installed by foreign powers, first Egypt and then Babylon. These are wicked kings. They are supposed to be servant kings. They're supposed to subject the nation to the Babylonian overlordship and pay uh, uh, protection money to Babylon and so forth. And they do for a while and then they rebel. They keep looking to Egypt to defend them and, and it all goes bad. So when you get to Second Kings 24, again, you can pencil some things in your Bible if you like, but in verse 1, you could pencil the the date 605, because that's the time that Daniel is taken away captive to Babylon, 605. 
Jehoiakim is the king, and he is killed, and they're not sure, perhaps during the siege itself. And in his place is his son, Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin only reigns for three months, verse 8, chapter 24, verse 8. Three months. His mother's name is Nahushta, which is kind of interesting because that's the name of the bronze serpent. That's his mother's name. He reigns only three months, it says. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he is deported, deposed and deported. Verse 10, you can write in the date 597, because this is the deportation of 597. This is the one when 10,000, verse 14 of chapter 24, 10,000 are taken captive. It is in this captivity that Ezekiel the prophet is taken to Babylon. So 605, Daniel goes, 597, Ezekiel along with 9,999 others, okay, go to Babylon. But here's what I want you to see in the midst of all of this. Verse 12, Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, went out to the king of Babylon, he and his mother and his servants and his captains and his officials. So the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign. You can underline that in the eighth year of his reign. Well, wait a minute. He only reigned three months. That's what it said. So how could it be the eighth year of his reign? Well, who's the he? The he is a reference to Nebuchadnezzar. It is in the eighth year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign that Jehoiachin is taken and deported to Babylon along with the 9,998 others. Okay. What's significant about this is this is the first time in the history of the kings of Judah when a king's reign is dated by a foreign power. Okay? His reign is now dated by a foreign power. This is the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. It begins here. From this point forward, the nation of Israel remains under the oversight of Gentile powers, all right? So this is the beginning. What does this time of the Gentiles look like as it plays out? Well, for that, you need to turn to the right to the book of Daniel. Daniel was taken in 605. Daniel lives in Babylon. Daniel is given a series of visions. Actually, the first vision comes to to, um, Nebuchadnezzar himself of a statue in Daniel chapter 2. You remember this? And this is a very, a very odd-looking statue. It's gold, it's silver, it's, uh, it's uh, bronze, and then it's iron and clay. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is going to kill his entire, all of his wise men because none of them can tell him. He wants to know, you tell me the dream, then tell me what it means. If you can't tell me what the dream is, I don't trust you to tell me what it means, and you're all dead. Right? Is that how it goes? And so uh, Daniel says, well, only God reveals dreams, and give me, you know, give me a little time to pray, and, and God will tell. And so God reveals to Daniel both the dream and the meaning of the dream. So I say it's Daniel's vision, if you like. The rest of the book of Daniel is nothing more than a, than a reiteration and an expansion of the original vision given to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. It's just, it's given to him again. And again, and again. And each time he gets it, he gets more details. There are four medals. Where am I here? I'm in uh, verse 34 of Daniel chapter 2. There are four medals for the statue. Right? Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. 
We don't have to guess what it is because he tells us. You, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of what? Gold. You are the head of gold. So immediately we know the statue represents a kingdom or a series of kingdoms. And as the remaining prophecies begin to spill out in, over, the, over the course of Daniel's life, we learn more about these four kingdoms. The gold kingdom, the silver kingdom, the bronze kingdom, and the iron clay kingdom. And we are told explicitly throughout the book of Daniel, and don't worry, we'll get there. But we are told explicitly through the book of Daniel that these kingdoms represent Babylon is the gold kingdom, Medo-Persia is the silver kingdom, Greece is the bronze kingdom, and Rome is the iron clay kingdom. But there is a fifth kingdom in the dream. Verse 34, Daniel chapter 2. Nebuchadnezzar, you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. There is a fifth kingdom. The fifth kingdom crushes the statue. As we look at future prophecies, what we come to to understand is that each subsequent kingdom consumes the prior kingdom. So the Babylonian kingdom, the Babylonian empire, is defeated and assumed by the Medo-Persian empire, the kingdom of silver. The Medo-Persian empire is defeated and consumed by the bronze empire, which is the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, who defeats the Medes and the Persians. The, the, the Bronze Empire, the Greek Empire, is beaten and consumed by the Iron Empire, which is Rome. And so what Daniel is given a vision of, and this is, this is what you've got to hang on to, he is given a vision of a panorama of the history of his people during the times of the Gentiles. The times begin when the, when the gold kingdom, right, exerts its oversight over Israel. That kingdom continues in its successor kingdoms, one consuming the other, until a fifth kingdom comes, which crushes them all, obliterates them all, and and becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. Turn to chapter 7, verse 13. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This kingdom, the one of the kingdom of the Son of Man, remember? The high priest says to Jesus in his illegal trial, Tell us, are you the Messiah? And he says, You will see the Son of Man come in his glory. And he says, What more need do we have of testimony? He has blasphemed. You've heard it. It is a de- declaration that he is the messianic king. He is the mountain that crushes them all and fills the earth. He is the one who goes up to the Son of Man to receive the kingdom. We will see the prophetic fulfillment of this in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 and 6 and following. When does the time of the Gentiles begin? It begins under the reign of Jehoiachin in 597 B.C. It continues to this day. 
The Roman destruction of the temple is merely one more incident in the times of the Gentiles. When will the times of the Gentiles end? It will end when the Son of Man comes and crushes these four world empires that have oppressed the people of God, the ancient Jewish people. Paul, in Romans chapter 11 and verse 25, refers to this speaking to the church speaking to the Gentile wing of the church, where he's telling them, listen, don't you be arrogant against the Jewish people. They were snapped off because of their unbelief, and you were grafted into the Abrahamic root of the olive tree. But don't be arrogant. Verse 25, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, what? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Why? Verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. There is coming a day when Messiah will come and crush the world empires that have oppressed God's ancient people and establish his kingdom. It will be a time of peace and prosperity. It will be the age to come. But in the meantime... Jerusalem exists under the heel of the boot of Gentile powers. Now, wait a minute. I thought you said Israel became an independent nation in 1948. She did. I thought you said in 1967 that in the 67 war, she she actually conquered the ancient city of Jerusalem and regained control of the Temple Mount. She did. But what sits on the Temple Mount? What sits on the Temple Mount? If you go to Jerusalem and you seek to go up onto the Temple Mount and you are a Jewish, you cannot go. And if you're a Gentile, you need to be very, very careful. If you're a Christian, that is, and, and you go up there, you need to be very, very careful when you go up there. Let me ask you another question. Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. Did you know that? It is their declared capital city. Do you also know that, that the, uh, the embassies of all the Gentile world powers are built in Tel Aviv. They're in Tel Aviv. They're not in Jerusalem. They're not in the capital city. And the governments won't move them to Jerusalem, including the United States government, under multiple presidents, Republican and Democrat. They, will, they refuse to move the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. And Israel can't do anything about it. She continues to this day to live under the oversight, and I would suggest oppression, of Gentile world powers. Beloved, we are still in the times of the Gentiles. The disciples, they ask good questions. It's not that they ask bad questions. They ask very good questions. The problem was is they just didn't understand what God was doing. They didn't recognize the mystery. And how could they? The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, it's been hidden from the ancients. That when Jesus came and and presented himself to his people there in the temple, and when they rejected him, ultimately saying, we have no king but Caesar, that they would enter a long and bitter period. But in the providence of God, in his sovereign plan, God would raise Jesus from the dead. By faith in his name, he would invite the the world to to be joined to him into this, this amazing new work that he was doing called the church where Jew and Gentile come into relationship with God on on equal footing. We're in the valley between the prophetic peaks. 
How, how much further we have to go in the valley, we have no idea. We have no idea. But there is a day coming when God will again return to pick up his program with his ancient people of Israel. When the, when the stone cut without hands that will crush the feet of Nebuchadnezzar's statue. When one like the Son of Man will, will come and, and will receive the title deed to his kingdom. And he will begin to break the seals and unroll the deed. Crush his enemies. and Establish the age to come. Let God be found true. Though every man be a liar. Our Father, it is your credibility that is at stake. It is the certainty of your promises that is at stake. Our Father, the reason under the inspiration of your spirit that the Apostle Paul penned Romans 9, 10, and 11, after his soaring doxology at the end of chapter 8 that says nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, he must immediately take up the question, what about Israel? If Israel could be lost, then on what basis could we find assurance? Oh Lord, these things are not merely academic topics. These things are not merely to satisfy our curiosity. These are about the character of our God. Now, Father, although there are details in which we have to say we're, we're not sure could be this, could be that, the general scheme is clear. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to grab hold of these things and that your Spirit would use them in us to, to rivet, to nail down our faith in the character of our God. Our study of prophecy together, our Father, would, would cause us to be overwhelmed by our God. And our Father, that we would find ourselves busy during these days. Help us be about the Master's business as we await the unfolding of this great prophetic panorama. We ask in Jesus' name.